Should I even have the respect of the peers in wine that get up and do this every day? Or am I just using my celebrity? I'm doing all of that. How about that? But I do love <laughs> and I want to do, I'm doing it and I love wine and I want my mama the name to be recognizing. So deal with it. My guest today, Cedric the Entertainer, is a super cool dude who has a long history of succeeding in various areas of the entertainment industry. He grew up in Missouri. His mom was a school teacher, and his dad worked for the Missouri Pacific Railroad. Cedric earned a degree in communications from Southern Missouri State University, but it wasn't until he was age 31 that he really decided to move into acting. He finally decided, I want to be an actor. He also got into stand-up comedy, obviously, and finally made a name for himself nationally by becoming the host of Deaf Comedy Jam, as well as BET's Comic View. This led to his breakout role, co-starring alongside Steve Harvey in The Steve Harvey Show. And Cedric also went on to produce, direct, and act in an expansive list of projects across television and film while keeping up as a premier stand-up comic. The list is very long, but a few notable examples include him starring in The Barbershop, hosting Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, and voice acting for roles in Ice Age, Charlotte's Web, and the Madagascar film series, among many, many, many others. Now, today, Cedric the Entertainer continues to make his mark in Hollywood. In 2019, he was honored with a place on the Hollywood Walk of Fame and is currently executive producing and starring in the hit ABC comedy, The Neighborhood. He's also hosting and executive producing the greatest at-home videos and executive producing a Bounce TV dramedy, Johnson. And recently, executive produced and hosted the 73rd annual Primetime Emmy Awards. He's recorded comedic interludes on two Nelly albums and on Jay-Z's The Black Album. I didn't even know that's so cool. Cedric seems to be everywhere all at once whether it's TV, film, stand-up comedy, music, author, or even creating wine. He's always working on a new project. And I can definitely relate to his passion and love for doing so many different things in life and doing them all at the highest level. Now, this comes from following your deepest desires, your passion in life, and living your truth, hard work, self-discipline, and perseverance. Success does not just land in your lap. Nobody's born successful. so. Cedric, thanks for taking the time to be on my podcast, The Kenny Arnold Sessions. I love that you didn't start acting until you were 31 and have accomplished so much since then, man. That's amazing. What up, Kenny? How you doing, brother? It's good, man. You know, my mother was a school teacher, so education was a big part of our household. So, you know, I did the, the, the you know, the kind of the trajectory. She raised us in a single parent household. My dad was set, moved and was remarried and lived differently. So, you know, my mother being an educator. So, you know, that trajectory back then was go to school, get your degree, get a corporate job. And so I had followed that path. You know, I followed that path in life. I was working for State Farm. I'd done some stuff where I was working for Rico Corporation, selling fax machines early in the in the early days of the fax machine. But always was an entertainer, man. Always a person that loved to make people laugh. And so you know, I was later in life when somebody told me, like, man, you could do this. Like, you could actually do it. And so, you know, I probably was like 27, 28 when I first tried comedy and probably didn't really hit till I was in my 30s. Yes, for sure. Dude, I can, like, you know, my mom was a school teacher, too. And my dad was worked at, at a paper mill. That's what you did back then. You know, you go to college, you get an education and you make money. My thing, I was always in music, but my thing, I went into classical music because there was no school of rock back then. And I got into the Jerusalem Symphony Orchestra after just five years of intensive training. At, I went to, you probably know, Bloomington, Indiana is, you know, Midwest. And that was the number one school of music for classical. But that's where you got to go train for State Farm in Bloomington. Indi uh, well, yeah, Bloomington. Yeah, that, yeah, there's a Bloomington, Illinois, and there's a Bloomington, Indiana. Yeah, IU, Bobby Knight. Anyway, though, I could totally relate. I turned down the Jerusalem Symphony Orchestra to follow my heart. I mean, I stayed music, but I said, I'm going to do rock and roll. I mean, I turned down certainty, a paycheck for complete uncertainty because, I mean, I see, how do you get into Led Zeppelin? I mean, who do you call, right? So I can relate to your 
that whole journey. And that's why I mentioned, you know, you followed your passion, you followed your truth. But that foundation that you got from that education is, you know, that's so cool. Was that a scary move when you went, I can't do this anymore kind of thing? Or how did that go down? Well, of course. I mean, because, you know, you're you're in that stage of life where you feel like you need to be either staying solid on solid ground. Like I got a trajectory where I'm moving upward. You know, I'm getting little promotions here and there. So you're on this kind of move. But And that was one of the things that happened. You know, of course, comedy started to really blow up, especially like in the late 80s, early 90s for African-Americans because shows like uh, Apollo and then eventually Def Jam and then Comic View, these started to give you this other kind of opportunity to get exposure. And so, you know, it was one of those choices where you're like, well, do I stay at a job that's a cool job and keep moving up and knowing that my salary is going to jump from here to there and or just go for it, right? And I did it right, though. I took my time. I, I built a good career base with my stand-up while keeping my job. And I'd let people, you know, get to know me. And I would travel on the weekends or I would take a week off and go somewhere and get known, like go and do a show somewhere and then come back to work and make sure that people, you know, I had it all going. And so when I kind of got to that tipping point where it was like, yo, I can do the safe thing and this is going to be a little rougher, but it's my, more my passion I just made the leap, but I did it with strategy though. You know, I had a, a comedy club that, that would book, they had 22 clubs around the country. And if you got in with them, they would book you twice a year. So that's 44 dates. Now I was the opening act at like 300, 350 a week, but it was 44 of them. And so like for, for 44, I could figure out how to make it, you know, and I ain't rich, but I'm not broke either. Right. So I'm just going to make this chance and go for my dreams. And that's what I did. That's smart. I bet your mom supported you no matter what you did, because she saw you working hard. You weren't just doing it. You were smart about it. And she understood that, right? Yeah. You know, again, like you said, you no, know, she was probably the first in her family was, the, I think, one of the seconds to go to college and go work and be a person of kind of climbing out of that generation of how you build your family up. And so... For her, you know, she was probably, I know early on, a little scared because this is strictly the unknown, right? We do things where, you know, it's strictly our passion and your life chances come by how good you are and are you ready when the opportunity shows up, right? You don't really get to pick it. It's like, yo, like this opportunity came. If you're ready and you look like you're ready to roll, then you're going to be in the mix. And like out of nowhere, you will go from zero to a hundred, like pow. And, you know, and that's kind of, you know, when she she saw me do comedy early in one of my careers, one of the one I always loved this story because, you know, again, she's a serious person, school teacher. But when I was letting her know I really wanted to do comedy, I told her a joke I'd written. We were sitting at, at our house in St. Louis where I grew up and she was standing in the kitchen and I told this joke to her and she laughed so hard she went to the ground. And she was all the way down on the floor, like, oh, and I was like, yes. And that's when I think she knew, like, okay, all right, go ahead. So it was a beautiful thing. You know, the thing is, do you remember that feeling of, it took me a long time to go, like, you know, when you have a job, like you said you had, you knew what your paycheck was yeah. each week, month to month. You knew you could go, okay, my trajectory is I'll make this much money this year. But in our business, when you get into the arts, it's like, uh, what am I got next year on the books? Nothing. Isn't that the weirdest? Like, whoa. And then, then you get a mortgage and then you get a car payment. And you're like, but I have nothing. And I remember I'd be hearing from people, don't worry, you always work. Yeah, but, you know, you just, it's not there. You know, it's like scary. And it's funny because it comes with also, you know, like you say, you can have a run where you're like out on tour. You're out with John Mellencamp or somebody, right? You out on the road. And then the next year he might not tour. And you'll be like, yo, everybody think you're famous and already rich because they saw you in this big environment. And they're like, oh, you got it. And you're like, no, nah, my man, he's not touring this year. He's chilling. That's how I get money, like, when we out there. So it's these things that people don't know, like the anxiety of being like this kind of entertainer that's, that's kind of running from show to show and situation to situation. But you wouldn't trade it. Like, once you have it and really, like, embrace it, it is, you know, a lot of ways of manifestation of allowing yourself to breathe and recognizing that it will be all right. Your talent will lead you. And then usually great opportunities come, man. You said the key word, I mean, belief. And belief comes from your heart. 
You can call it spiritual, whatever you want to call it. If it's just an idea, a thought, that ain't belief. You have to really believe it because when you believe it, man, it comes to you. You remind me of a story. We were flying around Mellencamp, private jets, selling out every arena and every every city in America. And all of a sudden, the last show up there in Milwaukee, at Milwaukee Fest, John goes, I'm quitting. I'm quitting for three years. I just gotten divorced. I had a child. And I went, what? I never saw it coming. It was like eight years of like, bam, all of a sudden. But there was a gift in there that I wasn't aware of. So that night, I'm freaking out. Like, great way to end the tour. Next morning, I wake up. You know what? I've been working for one famous guy for eight years. Now I'm going to go work with all the other ones. And that, I came out to L.A. And slowly but surely, I became, I created my second career, session drummer. So I ended up getting called. People started hiring me at drums in New York, Nashville, L.A., Indiana, of course, Japan, and Germany. There was a gift in there, but I certainly didn't see it when he said, I quit, because I was like, oh, my God, if he doesn't work, I don't work. Yeah. Right? It's like, wow, that's scary. But there's always, if you've got that right mindset, you go, okay, if I can't do this, I can do something else. And anyway, I want to pivot into something that you and I have in common. And and it's not drumming, it's not comedy, and it's not acting, that's for sure. I can't do any of that. Well, no, I can drum, but <laughs> so we both have a mutual appreciation for fine wine, and we both have our own wine with the same winemaker, Ian Smith of Smith Devereaux in Napa Valley. Let's go. That was crazy because I went to that party for the was it the Essies at the top of I think the rooftop of the Roosevelt Hotel in Hollywood, and that's where I met you. And uh, he was pouring you wine, and you have two wines. You have a red, a 2019 Seta Napa Valley Red and a 2022 Seta Napa Valley White. And what I love about this, I read that this is in honor of your mom, Rosetta B. Kyles, and her legacy. Am I right about that? Yeah. That is so cool, man. Yeah, again, you know, my mother wasn't a heavy drinker, but she did, you know, she would, as a form of relaxation, have a little glass of wine, and she would always go, you know, toast a glass with a touch of class. That was like her little thing, and that one little thing, right? And and she probably wouldn't even finish that, but that was her libation of choice, a nice little wine, and that's all she would want. And so, you know, when having the opportunity, you know, she passed in 2015, having the opportunity to think about, like, you know, of course, Ian is a, a great spirit. Like, he's like a really yeah. fine human being, funny as hell. And we just kind of hit it off. You know, he loves to do something that has a charity component. So the idea of, like, thinking, oh, man, this would be a great tribute to my mom is to make a wine let people have this beautiful taste. She was a, a beautiful redhead. So that's why we went with the Napa Red first. So we did Napa Valley Red Grapes. And then uh, we got the Californians coming out now. So that's the California Reds and the California Setters. And then I did a whole legacy thing. I did one for my sister, too, my Napa. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's my sister, Sharita. Yeah, right. That's a Napa White beautiful blend. That's so cool. I mean, you know what's cool? You're right. Ian is about connecting and wine. I mean, what better way to connect is to drink with somebody or people to be drinking, let's say, your wine and thinking about you and your mom and the charity. Yeah. It's real cool. My my wine is uh, called Uncommon Wine, which is on my arm is a tattoo that says Uncommon. Okay. And then the, the bottle is called Uncommon. It's kind of a picture of me. Yeah, the Tom Ford's already when you took this picture, man. What's going on? No, no. <laughs> those are those are diesels. Those are <laughs> so I think I'm I, Tom Ford, really are gonna owe you if you got that popping off, man. You think she Hey, whoever wants to sponsor me, man, I'll put them front and center. <laughs> I know that's right. Yeah, so mine's a blend. You know what it is? Uh Ian smartly just kept sending me bottles with no labels. And I kept picking the same woman. I like this the best. I like this best is, you know, you pee picking the same wine. And what it is is Syrah and a Cab Blend, 50-50. Yeah. I like it because it's super smooth. I mean, Ian's great. And it, I think he grows his own grapes, and yeah. he's a musician, and he's a he's such a writer and a good family man. And, and like I said, got a really funny, witty sense of humor, a bit of a cut up, you know. So it's all the marks for me, like, 
we met and had a great time at the vineyard. We sat out at the vineyard one day, just he and I, my first time meeting him, and we laughed and, you know, and and drank wine and talked. And then, you know, this manifested from there, this idea of doing this wine. And like I said, we've been in business for two years now, doing great, moving the meter slowly, you know, but that's the way I love to do it. I'm not here to, you know, to become uh, Francis Ford Coppola and them or whatever, you know what I'm saying? But I mean, I do love the idea of a great wine. I do love presenting a good wine to friends and family. Uh, and it's just been it's been working out and we've sold a great amount. And now we our relationships are growing even more. Really cool, man. It's one of, it's one of them get one of the things, Kenny, like you said, you don't even see it coming. It's a life moment. I was doing it for charity for somebody else. And it actually turned into a great business with a cool friendship meeting a lot of cool people and being introduced into a world I didn't even know existed, like other dope winemakers and the culture, the, the podcasters, the broad. It's just like, yo, it's like a whole nother world of people that's like, they do wine and that's what they love. You're like, all right. That's what happened with me too. It's like, it's completely, it wasn't for money. It was an opportunity. Somebody introduced me to Ian. And all of a sudden I was doing it. I was like, I knew nothing about the wine world. And the beautiful things, we can get in our car and just drive up north. You don't have to go very far. And you're in all kinds of wine. Matter of fact, I'm playing with Sammy Hagar at Paso Robles in about four days up there. That's my guy right there, too. Tell Sammy I said, what's up, man? Oh, you know Sammy? Yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. We... He has a wine. He has a wine, too. Wine and tequila. <laughs> yeah. Well, one of these days, it'll probably be almost impossible with our schedule. We got to go up, up to Ian's place and have a hang and do a whole thing up there. Yeah, that'd be so, that's so cool. Awesome. That'd be real awesome. I love that. That sounds good, man. Let's do it. How did you end up picking the, did he send you bottles and you, yeah, exactly. you had to pick you know, it? Yeah, that's the real process. Of course, like I said, I had an idea, like what I wanted it to represent. Like I said, I wanted to represent my mother. I knew that I wanted to start with a red wine because of her red hair and, and, and yeah. tone. And so, you know, and, and I knew that she liked a more smoother, sweeter, you know, fruit forward kind of wine. And so we end up doing that. We have a, a blend that's Cabernet, Syrah, and a bit of Merlot that gave it this beautiful bottom. So that's the Santa, that's the OG right here, man. That's the one right here. Wow. The OG right here. This is the one that started. And then we got the two new ones coming out. I don't have those bottles yet, man. So because... Uh, actually, he and I are going to meet this week in in Atlanta and introduce them into the Total Wines and more stores of Georgia. Yeah, I'm going to have to check that stuff. I did drink that one, the Soretta, that one up at the at the ESPY Awards, and that was I drank a lot of it. Yeah. Third, it yeah, yeah, one man. of those things is that once the glass is empty, hey, I'd like a little more. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He came from writing about wines. He was a writer for a magazine. And, you know, that put him in the valley, like, for many years, coming from, like, up in the bay or whatever. And he was, like, just be there writing. And then he kind of, like, manifested into making wines, understanding the grapes, knowing what it was. And then his passion for it is one that rubs off on you. And next thing you know, you're, like, super engaged and needing to be up there when the grapes are gone. And I, I, I go to bottlings and, you know, when the harvest. Really? Awesome. Like, yeah, you, like, gotta, you gotta be a part of it, man. Like, it feels like it just gets more and more exciting the more he kind of tells you, like, what's going on. I gotta do that, man. I gotta do it. Maybe we'll end up there at the same time. That'd be so awesome. Yeah, that'd be fun, man. Yeah, let's go. Yeah. Where do you get your hard work, your drive, you know, to create so much content? I know for me, I wish I had 48 hours in a day because I'm just wired to work. I love it. Of course, what we're doing is such a, it makes you feel so good. But where did that work art ethic come from you? You just made that way or it's just that you just love what you're doing or both? I think it's a little bit of both. You know, I definitely, you know, again, coming from St. Louis, very Midwest kind of town. It is, a, you know, grab your lunch pail, get a job, get the job done kind of folks. You know, my uncle, them, a lot of factory work, a little aeronautics work. But most, most of the people that I knew and grew up with, they work for the car companies or McDonnell Douglas or... Budweiser? Was Budweiser's there, right? Budweiser, yeah. You go down there, grab your boots, get your lunch pail, yeah. go to work and do your business, right? And it was that kind of mentality around there. And, it, you know, this is a fringe your age. You know, they're like, 
you know, because people want cars and they want things, but our parents couldn't really afford to get them for us. So kids would like get jobs and go to work. And, you know, and that was just the way, way it was for me too. So, and again, like I said, being a, the only male in a female household, my mother was just one that insisted on me being independent and being, you know, a man about it. And so, and, and, you know, couldn't afford to make me a spoiled child, you know, so she was like, you know, if you want it, you got to go do this. And so I just always took that attitude. Even in celebrity, I was telling somebody this, even in celebrity, I still embrace it like a person that's got to earn it. I was at a family event, uh, my wife's family the other night, and one of the younger kids was like, man, does this get on your nerves? Like everybody always coming up trying to talk to you. This got to get on your nerves. I know I would be mad if this was me. And I was like, why would you be mad, man? I said, bro. This is something people embracing you and coming up and saying they like what you do and they like they will love what you do. You can't be mad about that. I know what you're saying, man. It's like uh, I don't mind signing autographs. I don't mind any of that stuff. You know, there's this phrase I got. You can't set it and forget it. I mean, if you're running back, one touchdown isn't enough. One Super Bowl ring. Look at Tom Brady. One Super Bowl ring isn't enough. It's like, why wouldn't you want to get two or three or four? I don't get it. When people say... I remember a very famous producer went, Kenny, what's your five-year plan? What haven't you done that you... I'm like, I have no five-year plan. I'm just digging what I'm doing. I just love it. I just want to keep doing what I'm doing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And you can't and you can't set it, forget it, because people know me. I'm like the most prepared mofo. I will stay up. I can't go to bed thinking that everything's going to be okay tomorrow. I prepare, 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 prepare. Someone said, we already know those Sammy Hagar, Van Halen songs. Know them. Yeah, I kind of know them, but I have to f- go over them a billion times because I haven't played them in a long time. So you can't set it and forget it. And I love it. I love the process. I, I can tell you do. I mean, that's really, you know, I think that, you know, that leads to great success. I'll tell young entertainers that too. A lot of people, of course, we live in a very microwavable society, a very, the TikTok of it all, like one clip can make me famous, right? One little viral moment can make me feel like I have the same success you do because everybody's got everybody's attention in this moment. And yet, you know, you're not prepared to, like you say, to wake up tomorrow and do it again. You know, it's the repetitions, it's the practice, it's the, it's the misses, it's the misses. The ones that don't hit, dog, like when you be like, yo, like I thought this was going to kill. You take a little scrape up on the knee, on the elbow or something, you got to get back on that bike and go again. These things is what build great career, longevity, and a real fan base. That's what they're going to love about you. Like you say, your preparation is something that is going to be expected, right? When I come to a show, I know that you're going to give me something that's going to be like, yo, whenever, whenever I hear these songs, whenever I know, like, you're going to get a solo or whatever, it's not going to be because, like, hey, I'm just talented and I'm just going off the dome. I am prepared to give you something special because that's what I want to do, right? And that's it. Absolutely. I just did this gig with Jim Mercer, playing with all these, like, Vince Gill, Kenny Wayne Shepard, uh, Peter Wolf from Jay Giles Band, just to name a few that were the, the special guests. Well, we did 11-hour rehearsal, but I went home, back to my hotel that night, and stayed up till 3 o'clock rewriting the charts. Woke up the next morning, day of the show, did three more hours rewriting the charts, putting them on my iPad so I read every note. I practiced the count-offs. I practiced the endings, the beginnings. Then we do the four-hour rehearsal. Then I did the show. I'm working all the way up to the, the last second, and you write. I feel like I have to wow that audience. When a guy like you, Cedric or Kenny Aronoff, shows up to do their thing, people expect A+. plus. They expect to be wowed. We're not computers. We're not robots. We're humans. And boy, you said it. Michael Jordan used to say, I'm great because I missed a thousand baskets. Those misses taught me, oh, I, I, I need to do this. I need to do that. Right? Is a, definitely a part of it. And I'd say you attribute that to life. You know, I got a son, 22, you know, he's in college and he's a talented artist. And he's one of these guys, though, that, you know, always gives himself, you know, a lot of uh, stress about missing or not having all the answers or not being really ready or whatever. Right. And I'm like, son, like you can't 
fix it before you do it. You can't fix a concert before the concert. Like you could try, you can rehearse, you can do all those things, but what's going to happen at that concert is only going to happen at the concert. Like the fact that a girl might run on stage or, uh, you know, you, you don't know. That's totally different than rehearsal, bro. And you can't fix it before you're actually doing it. So get in there and take that and take those wins and those losses and that way to flow around and that way of learning because you can't stop yourself looking for success by preventing yourself from even trying to be successful. You got to do it. Oh, man, you're spot on. I mean, I always say there was that moment where you pivot from being what you're talking about and then becoming a guy like Tom Brady or Mahomes where if they get sacked, they're down 14 points. They got three minutes to the Super Bowl. These guys... No, they still can win the game. So when they get sacked, of course they're disappointed. But man, they're like, okay, what did I learn from that? I got only three minutes to figure this out. I'm going to learn from that. We can't run the play that way again. And we're going to move these guys around. Next thing you know, they got seven points. And then they somehow get another seven points because the defense comes on, gets the ball back to them. I mean, they just blow past I don't even use the word mistakes or failures anymore. I just say those are events. They're helping me get touchdowns. But, you know, when you're 22, I mean, that's that pivotal moment where people have to transition from feeling like I need everything to be perfect before I even do it. Well, it's, that's not the way it works. Those things that don't work out actually make you great. That's what you're saying. That's right. Of course. You know, being prepared, doing your work, doing your grind, going through your routines. That's really what life is all about, man. And so I try to take that into everything. Like, again, like both of us kind of the same. We didn't know anything about wine, man. Or, you know, and you wondered, are you have, do you have the skill set to be able to be a person that really exists here in a proper way? Do you deserve it? Any of the things that make you doubt yourself. Should I even have the respect of the peers in wine that get up and do this every day? Or is, am I just using my celebrity? I'm doing all of that. How about that? But I do love wine <laughs> and I want to do, I'm doing it and I, and I love wine and I want my mama to name to be recognized. And so deal with it. Like, you know, so, yeah. you know, like, you know, but then again, you start to learn for real. You start to care for real. And next thing you know, you're actually learning things and involved and able to really contribute. And but, but again, you can't do that without getting up doing it. That's the only thing I say. So you take the L's, you take the hard days. I said somebody's a freshman always. At some point in time in your life, you're the freshman. You're the guy that got to carry the bags and get the coffee. And I don't care if you've been, you know, like I say, if you've been a, a big deal somewhere else, when you coach in a new situation, you're the new guy. You got to just get that up, dog. Like, even if you're a veteran in other ways, when you go into someone else's home, you got to remember you're the guest. And that's that. No matter how famous you are or whatever, you know, you're the guest, man. You're at their house. You're doing it their way. Be respectful and, and, and then follow the norms and see if you can be a contribution. Man, oh, man. That, God, I wish I'd met your mom. I don't know. Either you were born this way, a combination of that, and your mom, boy. You got some really great fundamental stuff in place. Boy, oh boy. Yeah, I, I congratulate you on that. So comedy came first before the acting, right? It sounds like it. Yeah, yeah. And the first acting thing was when you were 31. It was you and the Wiz. Were you the lion? You know, that's on my resume, but that never actually happened. I got booked and it never actually happened. So that's one of those things that's so interesting. It's on my resume and everybody loves the fact. And I was like, man... I never, you know, the, it was a thing they were doing the Wiz, uh, redoing the Wiz for like a TV thing, and it never happened. And so <laughs> it was one of those things where it always shows up like, yo, you got booked as a cowardly line. I'm like, I wish, but I never got to do it. <laughs> that's funny, man, because that's what, that's it's there all over the internet. <laughs> exactly. Of course, the Steve Harvey show was my first big kind of acting thing. Well, I actually had landed a movie first. I did this movie called Ride. It was a pretty cool movie. It was my first kind of acting job. And then I landed the Steve Harvey show that kind of put me in television on a regular basis, which is great. So that movie, when you got that movie that you said about, was it have anything to do with comedy? It was just strictly acting. Yeah, no, it was a comedic movie. I was a stand-up. I got 
chosen. The producers were from St. Louis. Uh, the oh, director wow. was from St. Louis. So perfect. Uh, but the, the movie had like Snoop Dogg in it, and it was kind of kind of a this coming of age story. And I got to play with the late great John Witherspoon, one of these uh, one of oh, my comedic wow. idols, and yeah. he was fun. And I got to play his younger brother, and so I was put into a good situation where it was easy for me to kind of. All I got to do is kind of show up, be ready, and then hold my spot down, and I'll win. And that's kind of what happened. And so, yeah, but, you know, it started with stand-up, man. Cool. And so you wrote a book. Boy, boy, that was the biggest pain in the butt. Four and a half years when I wrote my book, it was like, edit, 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 edit. I'm sure you were like, wait a minute, that doesn't sound like me, and you have to edit like a mofo. It's called Grown-Ass Man, right? Grown-Ass Man. What is that book just roughly about? A Grown Ass Man was really more of the, you know, kind of the story of me and how I came to be. You'll learn a lot about that, like the little town I grew up in first with my mother of Carruthersville, Missouri, and then that's moving to St. Louis. And, you know, just how I kind of like end up being me. I tell the story about, you know, making my mother laugh and go to the ground and just kind of this whole idea of how I got on this trajectory of being a comedian. And that was one of my famous jokes is that I would respond to things by, you know, somebody would ask you to do something. And I'd be like, man, I'm a grown-ass man, dog. I'm not doing that. Like, you know, it's like, hey, you, somebody like, hey, man, hit me up at, at 11 o'clock at night. Like, let's go out tonight, Sid. Let's go to the club. I'm a grown-ass man, bro. I'm not going nowhere <laughs> at 11 o'clock. You know, I'm like, not anymore. <laughs> like, you know, so. Perfect. And so that's kind of where the whole thing is. And so. Uh, I just kind of used that as a, as the name of the book, uh, and it was off a very you know big joke I did. I, I think it's even in the Kings of Comedy. I do that yeah that joke. I like that because it's uh, it's like that name is you. You've been saying that. It's like it's not bullshit. It's like it's the real you. That everybody knows you knows that's what the title should be. I got a new book coming out, man. I was looking for it. Yeah, I wrote a novel, my first novel. Wow. I mean, that's fantastic. See, I wrote a book and I, I shelved it. I've been editing it twice and it's not ready yet. Flipping boxcars. So this is a novel about my grandfather who I never met, but I have all these great dreams about him and the things that he would do and the stuff he did. So I end up writing a novel about him based off some stories that my mother would tell me and some that my uncle would tell me. And then I just kind of expounded upon it and made this really crazy world of a, of a cool guy in the 1940s living his life in a small riverboat city, just kicking it, man. And so it's a great caper mystery. And it comes out September 12th. Oh, man. I got to check it out. Box bars. It's dope. That sounds amazing. All right, so I know I did some research, and I, I know you in, were into cars. When you were a kid, I read that you actually worked on your cars. You worked on your cars. I mean, you were, like, inside the hood. No. Dude, this internet is crazy, bro. Like, no. I was picturing you like a grease monkey. I mean, cause, you know, Jeff Beck did that. No, sir. Oh, my God. I, I was going to go, like, do you still work on your cars? You can't be working on your cars. But you never did work on your cars. Oh, man. No. <laughs> Boy, they're, they're lying. At, they're lying on that. I'm like, like, wherever these go, they, they hyping me up, man. They making me a good date. I'm using this. I can use this as a cool date profile or something. Like, this guy, <laughs> like, all the girls that go horseback riding. That's like, 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 like that's funny. <laughs> you never worked on your cars. And I'm sitting there going, like, wow, what? I was going to go, like, what tools do you use? Did you use those? <laughs> no, I, I am I am quick. You don't find me a mechanic fast, you know. <laughs> so. Well, you know, St. Louis, the Midwest. Yeah, yeah man, you fucking. <laughs> yeah, no, That's no, no. That's I, 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 You know, even, even then when I would do cars, like when I was younger, we would go and buy cars and do it. I had, like, two friends. They were really good at it, so I would help out, but I was definitely not the one, like, really flipping out a carburetor and changing over the flywheel and, you know, putting the belts on. They would do all of that, and I would have the tools. I would, like, loosen some stuff up for them. If he says, take that off, and, you know, un unloosen that bolt. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess you were sort of a mechanic. <laughs> yeah, I guess somebody... Somebody can take that story and make it make it a lot greater than what it was, but no sir. <laughs> oh my God. Well, I guess on the internet they said you were a heavyweight contender. No, joking. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, God damn! Holy shit! 
<laughs> this is getting better by the minute. So tell me about your NFL career being yes, a back. So I did nine years. Pittsburgh. <laughs> 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 yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Uh, yeah I took uh, Herschel Walker was my backup yeah, running yeah. back. <laughs> in that, in that, that, that year, I dated Beyonce. Of course, they yeah, exactly. Yeah, Jay Z. You know, stepped in. You knocked the other yeah, way. They knocked me out the way, man. Uh, <laughs> but he let you play on his record. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> which was kind of, um, which was kind of a, a, you know an unfair trade, but fine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. Oh man, you I, I feel real bad for you. I really feel <laughs> your life's gone downhill yeah. ever since. <laughs> terrible. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. So uh doing all the comedy and stuff, I mean, did that help with the acting and all these other mediums you're part of? I mean, did the comedy like give you this foundation? For sure. You know, I like I studied acting. I went to college and I majored in radio and television broadcast. So, I, you know, I had planned to be a news anchor of some sort. I actually had gotten a job at a CBS affiliate in Cape Girardeau, Missouri, to take the little small town where I went to school. And that was early on. So this is mid to late 80s and shows like Access Hollywood and this kind of entertainment news was coming on. And so it was like starting to be reporter jobs that were lighter. You know, you weren't like doing the heavy news thing. You were kind of still being a reporter, still being a journalist, but you, you do something more entertainment based. And so, you know, I was really launching up for that. And each network, each station started to have their own correspondent for that. So even in my college town, they had hired me to do that job, like do the fun stories, go out and make really cool stories of interest. And, and, you know, and, and so, but, that never happened. Almost like the, the like the whiz. I got hired and they never I never was able to go to work. Something ain't came up. And by the time my start date came, my job had lost all its funding. And so they, they had lost the money and they was like, sorry. And so that's when I had to go and regroup. And I went back to St. Louis and you know, worked in sales and bounced around a little bit and was a substitute school teacher and then, you know, eventually landed at State Farm and worked there. But landed at State Farm and discovered I could do stand-up kind of simultaneously. So the moment I get a, a really good, secure job that I could make it on, I found my passion. And so I just ride them two together until yeah. one became like, hey, cool, and I, I, I trust now I can go and take off and be this comedian. You know, maybe your next book would be, that never happened, but this did. <laughs> <laughs> that never happened, but this hey, did. Man, I got a whole kid on there, too. <laughs> I got a kid on there that I don't have. But that's a bloody joke in my family, because everybody goes, who is this person, Dad? Like, I was like, I was like they, got me, they got me with a whole other daughter named Tinky Fly. We don't know where she comes from. The comedic thing must have been awesome for when you host. When you host, I've seen you host. I mean, you know, it, you're just sitting there teed up. You have to be clever, of course, depending on who you're talking about, you know. Yeah, you know, you got, you usually, you know, you're responsible for being that master of ceremony for a night of flow. And, you know, the idea of like, you know, what you bring to the room, what are people are doing, how do you kind of keep this elevated and at the same time move the program along? Because that's usually the thing about hosting as well is that there is an agenda. These people, like, got to be out of this building by 11 o'clock. I don't care how funny you are. They're like, bro, with these union fees, <laughs> I'm coming to you. Like, you got to be wrapping this up. So the idea of knowing that you have a, a great responsibility of, one, elevating the room, having the people be energetic and being able to support whatever the message is for that night, is a really great job to have. And as a comedian, you know, it's great because you get to just be in charge of it. And hopefully, you know, I always say it, it's like riding a stagecoach, right? Like you got all these horses in front of you and they got all this power. And it's your idea to kind of create what to them feels like you're in charge, but they know that they actually the ones in charge. They got all the power pulling me. But if I if I give you these straps and I, and, and I do these things, somehow you think I'm running things. So that's the thing about being on that stage as a comedian. You the maestro of like yo, like I, let me take the energy here, 
if you let them off, that's the other thing. If you ever let them out of the, the and they realize like the barbarians can run the run the building, then that's the worst thing you could do as a comedian is give up your room and let people start talking and, and then when the crowd start talking to each other and you lose them. It's a very rough thing, man. You know, we don't even have the assistance, I always say, of a great drum beat or a guitar riff or something yeah. to help right. people. The microphone. Yeah, and you, you got to be like, yo, here it is. This is what I'm saying, blah, blah, blah. And you know, anybody knows a good orator when they see one, be it a, you know, a politician or a preacher or anybody that can, like, deliver a message, a good motivational speaker. You know, and then there's people that bore you to death, like a science teacher or somebody that you grew up with. You're like, oh, this man, he just can't tell a good story or nothing. Like, come on, man. Like, I need something here. That's why I respect you a lot. You know, I, I was talking to Bill Burr about that a while ago. It was like, God, you know, I'm on stage. If something gets squirrely, I got like all these people around me. We can share it. I got a drum set. You are sitting there with a microphone. Yeah. That's it. I mean, and you don't have a bandmate. You know what I mean? You don't have a teammate. It's you, man. So, like, at this point in your career, I'm sure you, you read the script, but you're so good at being in flow. You can, like, go out of the script, bounce around. But I bet at the beginning it was like, oh, my God, i got to read every word perfect, right? Of course. Terrified. Yeah, no, and it's one of those things, you're right. You have this anxiety that, you know, you, if you lose it, like, again, like, if you lose that moment, and that it goes off the rails. It's the thing that we fear most as comedians, because if it goes off the rails, it's very, very hard to get it back on. And of course, the larger the crowd, the harder it is, right? right. And so and sometimes it's worse, because sometimes small crowds are worse because they actually feel like they're literally there as a part of it. Like, you know, like you mm -hmm. comedy clubs, once somebody's drunk or talking it's just hard to get them back on track usually in a bigger crowd you can like hey all right cool let me get this side of the room to basically shut that guy down yeah 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 small room it can be it can be tough man lately the last two three years you know has it been more challenging you know because everybody's so polarized and you, you gotta be careful you don't say that and you gotta be careful you don't say that and you know is it get could the comedians i mean that's got to be rough because you're joking about everything, but everybody's like so uptight about everything. Is that a challenge? You know, I mean, there's one that hasn't, that I haven't embraced as a thing. It is, you know, we are in a super socially, politically correct world. You know, you go and you call somebody by the wrong pronoun and they can be extremely offended and, you know, these kind of things or the polarizing nature of our politics with, you know, everybody on one real hard line in the sand or the other, you know, about nonsense and not looking at, you know, that we just exist as human beings. So you recognize that little things can start arguments. But I think as a comedian, our main job is to go up there and be a person to put the mirror on the world, man. So, you know, if you do it, you do it with a degree of respect and understanding that everybody does have their truth and they got, you know, they got the things that they believe and they like, and I'm not here to be disrespectful to your way of life. I just got a point of view on it. Right. And this is my point of view. And so, you know, I think that that's, those are the things you got to trust because if you decide like, I'm going to try to make everybody happy, then, you know, you never make yourself happy for one. And you don't, you don't take the chance to either stretch the world or have people, you know, have a counter or or dissenting opinion, which leads for conversation and growth, right? So sometimes being the contrary person is perfect because I'm opposite of what you're saying, but I'm not being disrespectful. I just got a point of view that this is it. If it made you laugh and it made all these people laugh, then okay, it could be a little offensive, but let's talk about it. Let's not just be mad about it. Let's talk about it. Why did that resonate? Why did people love it? Because to a certain degree, you know, they feel like they got this point, right? And that's that. And so, or it's true to people. And so that's a very touch and go subject, but it's one thing that comedians, they gotta have the right to do. And we used to do that before, you know, before it was, you know, we were just talking about like Eddie Murphy's whole, you know, he one of the greatest comedians ever and raw or delirious. Or, or You couldn't even show them specials in today's 
climate. Like you couldn't even, he couldn't even shoot them because in today's climate, so much that he said was completely offensive and unacceptable. And yet, you know, at the time he did it, it was just like, all right, so you got to be honest that, that as an entertainer, you live in your moments, you live in the time that's here. And so therefore you can't really hate on or be mad at the playing field. It's the field. And so now you got to go out there and just deal with what's, what you got to do. You know, 10 years from now, this won't even be a thing, right? Because life moves on and people get on a whole nother soapbox and they be like, oh, man, that was a whole thing. You're like, yeah, that was a whole thing in 2000, <laughs> you know, 23. You couldn't you could say this. You couldn't talk about that or whatever, right? But now people don't even give a shit. You know, my dad was the coolest. My dad, you know, he obviously had foundation. I mean, he, he was in the bomber to the last 13 missions that took out Hitler. Those big bombers that flew over Berlin. But he was a very open-minded man. And the thing, one of the biggest things I like about him was that he would listen to anybody. I don't care what opinion they had. If they were completely opposite of his opinion, he was completely honored discussion. Yeah. That was the cool thing. He honored discussion. That was the umbrella. Everybody should be able to speak. I listen. I may disagree, but... Let's have a discussion. That was the coolest thing. It's the best, man. It's always fun when you have, when you meet people like that, right? Where you can sit and there's a little bit of, you know, uh, volleying, you know, a little back yeah. and forth, you know, like, oh, yeah. oh you got that. Why not? Okay. Oh, nice. Oh, okay. Hey, all right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That, you know, that leads, that leads you right. It stretches you. It gives you an opportunity, and of course, sometimes you can become completely enlightened and able to change in these moments because, one, a lot of times our ignorance about a subject matter is the reason why we feel some way. We don't, we've never even met these people before. We never even, we never sat down and talked to somebody that we feel different about. And then you, when you meet them, you're like, oh, okay, the Amish. You know, they actually are cool. Like, you know, I see them with the little horse and buggy, but. You know, once you meet an Amish dude, you'd be like, oh, my man, cool, though. Like, chill. Yeah, he don't watch television, and he don't, like, he don't have a phone, but as a human being, like, he a solid dude. Like, you know, those kind of things. You'd be, just be surprised. Yeah, oh, man, I, I, I totally agree. All right, so I see there's a basketball behind you and a helmet, so you're a sports guy, right? Oh, yeah. you got to be St. St. Louis, at least... The Cardinals, come on. Uh, Cardinals for sure. Again, we used to have the Rams there on a great run. Uh, but the baseball Cardinals are, you know, are just like one of those consistent things uh, that's been a part of our lives. And we've never had a national, we never had an NBA team. We used to have an old ABA team a long time ago, way before my time. But baseball and football are, are really big. And now it's a great little soccer team there. Did you play sports? Yeah, I played football and, and basketball, you know, for a little bit, you know, but ended up leaning more towards the arts. I was saying I was <laughs> living in a single-parent household, so I was at football practice one time. My mom came to get me, and, you know, I'm a young dude, and uh, and I'm, I'm wearing some dress socks. at uh, I got on my, my tube socks, and I got on some black socks that I thought made my outfit look better, right, my, my uniform. <laughs> Yeah, and coach saw it and was like, "Hey, fancy dancer, you know," <laughs> and made me the tackle dummy for all alignment. And when my mom comes to pick me up, that's what she sees. She sees these big kids just running, boom, knocking me down, kicking me, dragging me. She was like, "Nah, I'm like." Nah. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what position besides that day? What was your position? It was a wing back. It used to be like a kind of fullback, wingback situation. Yeah. And then I played a little defense. You know, they had me like in a, like, I was, yeah, it was like a little linebacker role, like, you know, but I didn't play. We had some really good kids that played it more. So I was a, like a second string, third string dude on the defensive side. But I had really good balance and I was like kind of a bigger kid. So I ran like a fullback, but, but had great balance. So, so, you know, that's where they had me on the, on the football. Yeah, I was a total sports. I was a rock jock, as they call me. I had the long hair. Yeah. Coaches were always like, cut your hair. I cut it like that much. They say, cut it again. 
They kept trying to get it up higher and higher. Hey, man, I got I got a gig this weekend, bro. Dude, don't you know I'm never going to have hair after I'm 18? Let me have my hair. Yeah, come on. <laughs> yeah. All right, so if all of a sudden you weren't acting, doing comedy and all these incredible things you're doing, is this something that, what would you do? I know you do something. There's no way a guy like you doesn't just stop. There's no, there's no retirement in your vocabulary, right? No, you know, I'm pretty much an entrepreneur by nature. I'm like a person that's always kind of creating things and looking for developing things. You know, you know, we do a, we toy with a little real estate. Uh, you know, I've got a, a new barbecue line coming out with uh, Anthony Anderson. We're actually in Walmart right now. So we're in like in 28, 2300 Walmarts around the country. AC Barbecue, that's what it's called, uh, Anthony and Cedric, but AC Barbecue. Uh, it's fun. We got a show coming out. You can watch it, the, the show on uh, A&E uh, starting August like 14th. It's going to be fun. We, you know, did it like. What's a, the show called? What's the show called? Called Kings of Barbecue. The Kings of Barbecue. Oh. You'll start seeing, you'll start seeing uh, posters for it or whatever. But basically, we recognized that it was not a national barbecue brand that somebody like, you know, really endorsed. And so we re we created one and then created a, a great partnership. We got Walmart and in talks with Lowe's and Home Depot for our tools and spatulas and tongs. And then we're going to introduce grills next summer. Uh, but we got spices, rubs, sauces, and, and also looking at doing a couple of little pop-up restaurants. So we're really growing it in a, in a big business. I want to do these big Coachella-esque uh, smoke-offs. You know, everybody come and cook, and you know. So I'm trying to. Create. Oh man! Yeah, we're gonna have a we're gonna have a good time with this. That's phenomenal. Actually, people don't realize how that's a lot of work, a lot of people involved to get something so simple like that out there. Everything from strategy, marketing, buildings to get in Walmart's not easy. That's a lot of work. It's a, such a simple idea, but I'm here to tell everybody this is massive, twenty four seven. Every day of the week to get that to happen. But, dude, listen, I won't keep any longer, man. It was so cool hanging with you. I feel like I, I grew up with you or something. Yeah, man. I'll see you down the road. and Maybe we'll end up at the winery together. But, man, have a great day, the rest of your week, the rest of your year, whatever. Thank you. You too, Kenny. Appreciate it, man. It's fun, man. And uh, it's good. You keep it up, man. Good, good. I will. You know I will. Let's coordinate it. I love to hang with you, bro. Let's do it. Let's get one. Let's get one in. You got it, man. I I can't wait. <laughs>